Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It is Radiotherapy, it's myself, Panel Beater with Dr. Sharma and Dr. Neo, and you, of course, you might be joining us on FM Digital online via the app or sometime in the future, listening back on the podcast. Whichever way it is, great to have you with us. Dr. Sharma, Neo, Happy New Year. First time for us uh, on air since we caught up last in November. And not much has happened, really. Nothing, really. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> It's wild. <laughs> it's been a quiet few months. That's right, yeah. It was a good little uh, <laughs> sojourn. What has changed? We, I think we first uttered the words Omicron. That's how long ago it was, and now Omicron is part of the um, vernacular. Oh, we've got son of Omicron. We've got, uh, was it, uh, was it, what was it, the Rats? fluid? <laughs> F- flu, I can't remember. This, so much has happened. Yeah. So the whole rat crisis happened. Yeah. Uh, aged care, right. that's all Just kind of happened. Keeps going more and my goodness, what I thought was going to be hopefully like a peaceful summer break. Uh, it just kept rolling on and it's, on and got bigger. That's interesting the way that you phrase that. Uh, what did what was it we were expecting the next few months to li- be like? We'd just come out of lockdown again. So we were, we're talking about at the end of November, right? We were just coming out. I think I uttered the words hot, hot vac summer at one point. <laughs> and I think I may have doomed us all. Yeah, oh, I don't. I don't know. I I um, I w- I finally got out of Victoria for the first time in two and a half years, and took a flight um, at Christmas time. Saw my brother for the first time in two and a half years, and it was that weekend where Sydney's numbers went gangbusters. I mean, I know we're up into the what are we up to now? Twenty four thousand a day or something, whatever it was, whatever it is. Um, but one little reference point I've got for my own experience of the change in the way we go about things was this was the weekend where it went, I think it hit a thousand mm. and people were freaking out because we were so trained to think that double figures were bad, let alone triple figures, and now we're into four figures. And there was a major cultural shift in reading those numbers and now it became less about infections, which we just were going to assume were just big numbers, and now trying to maybe just read hospitalisations and deaths. Mm. That's right. And uh, part of that was uh, the fact that you know, that's the thing that matters more immediately. But also there are a lot of us who actually do believe that the, the raw numbers of transmission matter. It's just that the numbers that are produced now don't really mean much because it, it's... You can't match the amount of uh, testing uh, to the number of infections in the community. So I think no matter what your views on code control are, we've all kind of given up, I think, on putting too much credence yeah. in those raw testing, uh, those positive case numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, just trying to think what where our headspace was back at the end of last year. Perhaps naively, speak for myself, I won't speak for anyone else, I kind of was probably part of the crew who thought, oh, with these vaccination numbers getting so high now, you know, getting in the 90s, that that something resembling normality was going to happen. And we're not in lockdown anymore, but we're not normal either. (laughs) No, it's a true shadow lockdown. We were all afraid of uh, having to isolate or get get infected. Uh, so it's, it's a tricky time. I think, you know, speaking for myself, I was certainly optimistic 
uh, of those vaccination numbers heading into summer. We know what seasonality does. At the back of my mind, sure, was this concept mm. of, a, of a of a variant, but it was pretty abstract uh, of just coming out of, of, of Delta, and here we are. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting to see how things have changed. So there has been this whole talk about the shadow lockdown, and I don't know if uh, this is just uh, my experience, but last night I was actually out and saw quite a few people out and about, you know, things starting to return to some sense of normality. But with the the clear change of, of sitting outside at a restaurant, lovely night, mm. and almost every single person who came to that restaurant requested one of the tables outside. Yeah. And it, was, it was nice seeing that, that some of that messaging is getting through. Like they were packed outside and almost empty inside. That's really interesting. So yeah. something yeah. must be changing. I think so. And, and yeah, and perhaps to underline, you know how the exception is the rule kind of attitude. I saw my first overt, you know, um, public display of aggression, negative aggression towards. Um, uh, it was in. It was at a uh, pub actually, and a customer came in, and the you know the signs are everywhere, and and the bartender said, "Oh, look, can you just show us your." Um, your cert and can you put your mask on and this guy immediately he kind of got the impression that he turned up looking, looking for, for a bit of a fight yeah yeah but, but I'm trying to re- actually reinforce your point that's the only one of its kind that I've seen this whole time I've heard about them I've re- read about instances of, of that but it was the first one I'd, I'd witnessed and you know um, I think that's a good sign it is I think it's a marker that we are in Australia, a very compliant society and culture. Yeah. Uh, it, it's worked. And it, this compliance is not... I, I'm not so cynical to think that it's only based on, you know, rule following and fear. I think most people, most of the time, want to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I reckon that might be the last of the C word for the rest of the show. What do you reckon? Fat <laughs> <laughs> <That> chance. <laughs> Let's try. Let's see how we go. Because we do have a a full show coming up. Um, Working backwards, uh, at the tail end of the show, we're going to run a a conversation by by us all, looking at the way um, med science is communicated, the link between experts and um, the audience that they try and uh, target, looking at what happens between an expert, so-called, we're thinking about people who have all the credentials, um, they might be institution-based, um, they've got professor before their name, etc., and they come up with uh, something that um, the general public finds engaging, something relevant to them. And thinking about you know, how med science gets popularised and how it enters into the conversation and what risks and opportunities there are with that. And obviously shows like Radiotherapy, Einstein and GoGo and others, that, you know, are part of that, um, that communication of science. And we want to have a conversation around that and perhaps using as a case study a book by um, Matthew Walker that has drawn a lot of attention over the last few years called Why We Sleep. Um, and many listeners, I'm sure, have bumped into this. I'll use that as a little bit of a case example. Um, just prior to that, um, Dr Sharma, some new research in MS looks very exciting. Well, yeah. It's it's so exciting. It's rare that I get so excited about just one paper, uh, but it is uh, linking the Epstein-Barr virus, the virus that causes glandular fever, with MS. And effectively, this one piece of research has pretty much convinced most, if not everyone, that that virus triggers or causes 
MS. But it, it's a fascinating thing to talk about. We'll, we'll get on to that a little bit later. Great, great. Looking forward to that. And our special guest, um, Yeah, Leo. I'm going to um, unfortunately talk about the C word today for my segment. But it's um, we're very lucky to be joined by Professor Sue Walker, who is a Director of Perinatal Medicine at Mercy Hospital for Women, who will uh, be discussing COVID during pregnancy um, which I'm sure will be a very enlightening conversation. Yeah, yeah, really, really looking forward to that. And that will be our first segment up just after these sponsor announcements. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We are joined by Professor Sue Walker AO, who is a director of perinatal medicine at Mercy Hospital for Women. She provides clinical care to some of the most high-risk pregnancies in the state and is a passionate educator and researcher. Her research interests include improving detection of fetal growth disorders, reducing the burden of preventable stillbirth, and identifying new treatments for preeclampsia, a disease that takes the life of 70,000 mothers and 500,000 babies every year. Professor Walker is joining us today to discuss how COVID is impacting women, and in particular, pregnant women, and we will be hopefully get some time to discuss a few common misconceptions surrounding the COVID vaccines. Welcome to the show, Professor Walker. Oh, good morning. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's lovely to be with you this morning. Uh, so, Professor Walker, I'd like to give our audience a bit of an understanding of how COVID is currently impacting pregnant women and what it really looks like for a pregnant woman to become infected with the virus. Yes, thanks. I mean, it's such a, um, a common thing for people to be wanting to get a bit of an understanding of. And I think as probably you've, you and your listeners are aware, things have changed such a lot with the Omicron variant. But um, we do worry about COVID-19 in pregnant women um, in the way that we perhaps have a little bit less worry for their age-matched peers. And it's certainly true that COVID is a bit worse in pregnancy than it would be if you weren't pregnant. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, when you're pregnant, you're carrying around this um, lovely human inside you who's a half antigenically not yours. So it's your partner's DNA. And so there's what we call immunomodulation of pregnancy. So it means your immune system is just a little bit less hyper-aware. So it means that things like flu and respiratory illnesses can tend to be a bit worse in pregnancy. And you're also a bit more risk of clots in the legs and clots in the lungs when you're pregnant. And that's a bit of a characteristic of um, a COVID-19 infection as well. So we worry a bit about that. And of course, as every pregnant mum will remember, as the baby gets bigger and bigger, it's pushing up under your ribs, it's pushing up your diaphragm, and so it's reducing your lung capacity a bit. So you can understand that it's those three things that mean maybe we could expect that COVID-19 might be a bit worse in pregnant women. And that's certainly been borne out by the literature that if you look at severe respiratory disease, which I guess was particularly what we were seeing at the end of last year with the Delta phase, um, in pregnant women, you'd see about a threefold increase in their risk of being a bit of ICU or of needing ventilation or what we call ECMO where we take over the job of the lungs um, and an increased risk of maternal death compared to women of the same age who weren't pregnant. So it is a bit more of a worry for us in pregnancy. Um, and then I guess people also think, well, what does it mean for the pregnancy if you're okay, but what does it mean about pregnancy outcomes? 
Um, and we know that there's a little bit of an increase in the risk of preeclampsia, so that's a high blood pressure disorder in pregnancy, and particularly for mums who get severe disease, an increased risk of preterm birth and stillbirth um, and cesarean section. So all of those things, of course, um, come together and mean that we really like to um, give great information to women who are pregnant or planning to be pregnant, particularly about the benefits of vaccination and making sure that we support them well if they get COVID-19 in pregnancy. So, Professor, uh, you thought, clearly thought about this uh, so well and you've had to build an entire support service around um, protecting in, uh, women who've got COVID and are, are going through your service. Give us an example of the things you've had to do uh, to, to have a system that sets up that prevents pe other people from getting infected, making sure that women who've got COVID who are, say, giving birth, um, everything's there to support them as much as needed. How have you had to adapt your service? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, a, you know, a, a bit of a wicked problem, COVID, because it's constantly changing. It's a really volatile environment that we're working in. It's complex, it's ambiguous, it's, it's uncertain. And, of course, none of us as healthcare workers like that. We like to have predictions of, um, of certainty. But I think that um, the Omicron wave has been entirely different to the Delta wave. And so you can't really have a Delta solution to an Omicron um, problem. So with Delta, we did have um, a much higher proportion of unvaccinated women. We were much more worried about that severe respiratory disease that we know we don't see quite as much with Omicron. And so we were always sort of watching people who are outpatients with COVID very closely for a very long period of time, sort of the 14 days, um, to try and make sure that if someone was deteriorating, we were offering them the right outpatient treatment and getting them into hospital in a timely way so that we could make the best decisions for them and the baby. Now, Omicron, as you know, all of you and many of your listeners will be aware, it's really different. You know, it moves faster, it's more infectious, and we're working in a time of society where restrictions have been lifted um, in many cases. So this means, of course, we had a sudden explosion of cases over January. Um, and But we also saw, thankfully, that it was a less severe, a shorter illness. So um, Omicron sort of seems to target the upper respiratory tract, so up in your nose um, or in the back your throat rather than that propensity for the lower respiratory tract that we were seeing with Delta, which is why people got so sick with lung disease. And we also had the benefit of a highly vaccinated population. So it meant we had a completely different problem to be dealing with in January. It meant we needed a lot more testing because so many more people were infected or at risk. Plus strategy, recognising that there was some vaccine escape, and we needed to have a surge health capacity because so many of our healthcare workers were also affected by being sick or being close contacts and stuff. So Omicron has been quite different for us um, in terms of how we manage it for pregnant women and their families. Um, and so I guess the sort of thing we realised quite early in January is that this would really need a partnership with us and patients um, and that we needed to make sure we gave the Vaccines Plus message to all of our healthcare workers, all of our pregnant women, masks, ventilation, outside, all of those important public health messages as well. Um, we told all of our antenatal patients, this is what you do if you get COVID, because it was just so much more likely than it was during their Delta outbreak. And then 
women who had COVID, um, you know, we ring all of them um, and we do a bit of a triage because we know there are some people who are a bit more at risk of running into problems, particularly unvaccinated, but there are some other high risk groups as well. And from that triage phone call, we then send them a video, we send them written resources, and most people are going to have a very mild illness and with the right information can manage it well at home, but then we've got a hotline to back them up. So if they just sort of have questions or worries and they just give us a call and then there's a group, as I say, that we continue to ring every day or every second day to check in on them. So, yeah, it's been an interesting time um, to have to sort of um, the same disease but a bit of a different approach and a different response needed just given what the Omicron wave um, presented to us. That's an incredible amount of resources that you've been putting into this. It's just so, uh, I, so inspiring to hear. I guess what I'm interested in, and I think a lot of our listeners, some of whom may be pregnant or at least know people who are pregnant, um, would be interested in hearing is just some of the practical points that uh, would help them remain safe if they experience COVID during their pregnancy. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. So, um, for yes, big shout out to anyone who's pregnant out there, or who's thinking about becoming pregnant, um, or who is working with pregnant women in any way. Um, so it's a it's just such a special, lovely time in your life, and I don't think we want it to be completely overshadowed by the risk of COVID. But I just want to um, reassure pregnant women that the vast majority of women will have a very mild self-limiting illness, um, and so although as I say, there are risk factors for some women who may get a little bit sicker with it. We've got our eye on those and we can offer effective interventions to protect them from deteriorating or requiring hospitalisation. And that's why we really like to know about you nice and early so that if you're a candidate for some of those treatments, we can make sure we get those to you in a timely way. So the vast majority will be totally fine. In terms of um, everybody worries about what's the risk to the baby, as I say, some of those pregnancy risks are a little bit more common especially with severe disease um, but most of the time mum and baby will be absolutely fine um, with a COVID infection and that's particularly so among women who are vaccinated. Um, so then we just like to give them some advice about how to manage symptoms at home, you know how do you manage sore throat, what can you take for stuffy nose and cough and so forth because of course everyone's very um, careful about what they take during pregnancy so it's just great to have a bit of advice about managing fever and sore throat no symptoms and then importantly what you should watch out for and so we give people advice on how just to keep a bit of an eye on their breathing rate their temperature their heart rate and for some of those people we'll be sending them out an oximeter which is just like a little peg you pop on your finger just so we can monitor oxygen levels as well and then um, and then people just need to know what do I call an ambulance for what do I go to hospital for when should I call the hotline and what can I manage myself at home so um, I, I guess I'd just like to say you know there are there are lots of resources all of us are here to help you and in particular I guess I'd like to say to all pregnant women if you need to come into a hospital for any reason whether you've got COVID or whether you are just you haven't got COVID but you're a bit fearful of coming into hospital you know, if you have any of those things that would normally make you think about calling the hospital or come in, please, please do. Um, we want to see you if the baby's not moving very well. We want to see you if you're having bleeding or pain. And we've got completely safe ways to manage and look after you. Whether you've got COVID, that's totally fine. We've got a great assessment area where we can take great care of you. Um, and if, you're, um, if you've not got COVID, then be assured that we've got processes in the hospital. So it's a very very safe place for you to come.
come if you need to come to the emergency department or, as you say, if you need to come in and give birth. Uh, Professor Walker, you were talking a little bit earlier about um, the care that's being provided for for patients, um, uh, for pregnant patients with COVID. What about that? What's, what's going on at that very specific time around the birth? You know, the birthing itself and the immediate care straight after, where you know that that bonding process, among other things, require um, the mother and the um, you know, in an ideal situation, the mother and the child um, to be together. What's going on in the hospital environment around that period of time? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, look, um, I think the the nuts and bolts of this is that in almost every case, we will be wanting to keep you and your partner and your baby together throughout that entire um, birthing period and post and um, the postnatal period with your baby. So, if a mum has got COVID, um, and obviously it's a little bit more complex if her partner has got COVID, but if a mum's got COVID, that's totally fine. We've just got um, slightly different areas in the hospital, but you'll have fabulous one-on-one midwifery care, as you always do. The doctors will be looking after you. We all look a bit funny in our gear with the PPE. Um, But whether you have a natural birth or whether you need to go to theatre for a caesarean section, we've sort of got all those processes set up so that we can make sure that, you know, it's safe for all our patients and our staff, but also so that it's a really happy birthday for your baby and for your family. Um, And look, if people have had an uncomplicated vaginal birth, often what we'll do is we'll leave them together in that sort of birthing suite and then discharge them home from there rather than moving them around the hospital. But then I think all maternity services now really have got an approach for if they need to go to the postnatal ward or if you need to come in when you're pregnant and you've got COVID for that time, that's fine. We've just got um, particular areas where we make sure that you get the um, exact sort of care that you need and in a way that's safe for everybody else. That's such an important part, not just staying safe, but making sure that it's a happy and memorable moment. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's been uh, it's been such a joy looking after so many of these women, um, and yeah, I just uh, yeah, I really want to reassure you that we're all here for you. We all know this is tough, and we want to make sure that this is as safe and happy and memorable birthday as you and your family deserve. Um, Thank you so much for that, Professor Walker. I guess I just want to finish up on uh, one of the more controversial topics here in that, unfortunately, I was actually part of a community COVID monitoring um, program late last year during the Delta wave, and I was seeing a fair few unvaccinated and unfortunately positive pregnant women. Um, And often they were expressing that these fears are around, uh, you know, fertility or fetal injury with the vaccine, Hoping that you could um, discuss discuss these um, these topics a little bit, just to um, try and dispel this misinformation. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, it's completely understandable that pregnant women will be vaccine hesitant. You know, we've spent our entire time telling people, oh, don't take this and don't take anything you don't have to when you're pregnant. And it's sort of, I can understand that it feels like we're going against the grain by saying, oh, we want you to inject something into your body that, um, you know, hasn't happened before. So perhaps it's worth just pausing and thinking about a couple of things, you know, about how the vaccine actually works. And then let's talk a little bit about other vaccines in pregnancy and then increasingly we're getting more data about this vaccine in pregnancy. 
Um, so first of all, you know, the mRNA vaccines, which are the ones we recommend for pregnant women, so this is Pfizer or Moderna, you'd have heard of, um, referred to as, um, remember that um, this, the only thing that's in this vaccine is this little bit of mRNA, which is just a little piece of genetic code. It's like a recipe to make a protein. And then there's some fash that's in it and a bit of salt. That's it. That's the only thing that's in the vaccine. And so the mRNA enters the cell, but it doesn't enter what we call the nucleus of the cell, which is a little bit the engine room, and that's where your DNA is. So this can't get incorporated into your DNA. This just sits in the outer body of the cell, and the mRNA goes into that cell, and the cell's machinery then reads the recipe instruction to make a spike protein. And, one, and so it's a really ingenious way of doing a vaccination because we always introduce a spike protein one way or another with any sorts of the older vaccines or um, the newer ones. And it's really just having the spike protein which sits on the outside of the coronavirus. And by having that spike protein artificially manufactured, manufactured by your own cells, then that, goes, um, that gets presented to the lymph glands in your armpit, which is where you get a bit of a sore or swollen armpit. Those lymph glands then say, hey, this is something I don't know, I haven't seen this thing before, I'm now going to make antibodies to it. So the vaccine itself, that instruction is ripped up, it can't circulate around your bloodstream, it doesn't go across the placenta. The only thing that circulates in your bloodstream then is these antibodies that have been made by the lymph nodes so that if your body comes into contact with um, the coronavirus, which has got the spike protein on the outside, it says, aha, I know what this is, and the antibody can start effectively destroying that virus before it gets down into your lower respiratory tract and starts causing trouble. So I guess um, that's a bit of a long-winded explanation about mRNA vaccines, but I guess I'm just trying to make the point that there isn't much biological plausibility for how it would confer fetal damage. Do you know what I mean? It's just a little transcript that makes that tells the cell to make the spike protein. There's a bit of fat, a bit of salt. That's all that's in the vaccine. There's nothing else that's mysterious about it. And then that recipe just gets ripped up as soon as the body has made the spike protein that the body then forms antibodies to. So then if we move on to what about other vaccinations in pregnancy? So mums would get the flu vaccine in pregnancy because for the same reasons I said early on, a bit more of risk of respiratory illness being severe. And we know that that protects not just the mum from severe illness, but it reduces the risk of stillbirth, uh, so a severe illness affecting the baby inside. And it also protects the baby in the first six months of life from having major respiratory illness due to flu. And that's because the antibodies cross the placenta and the baby is born with its own package of immunity. And many of the mums out there will have also had whooping cough vaccine, and that's a similar principle. We're really using the mum as a bit of a drug mule there. We're spiking up her antibody production, so it crosses the placenta, and then that baby is born with its own little package of immunity because we know that whooping cough is actually the most dangerous at very young babies before they've had a chance to have their own vaccination. So I think what we know about other vaccines and what we understand about how this vaccination works um, should be um, should hopefully give some reassurance. But I think the thing that gives us the most reassurance is looking at real-life data. So if we look at how these vaccines have gone in pregnancy, the side effects, you know, so fever, pain, muscle ache, um, feeling fatigued and so forth, they're no worse for pregnant women. In fact, they're probably a bit better. So that's reassuring. You're not going to get more sick from the vaccine um, or have more side effects, I should say. 
In terms of other pregnancy problems, there's no increase in miscarriage. That's been really clearly documented now. There's no increase in problems with the baby. We've just had um, data come out of the US of another 40,000 pregnancies, no increase in preterm birth, no increase in small babies. So we really do think this doesn't confer any additional risk to the pregnancy. And as I say, when we look at the data of, um, you know, the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated women, in contrast, big Scottish studies have come out and said that unvaccinated pregnant women, as as I think as you've been your experience as well, they comprised 80% of infections, 90% of hospitalisations, 98% of ICU admissions. So the COVID vaccine is safe. COVID-19 is not safe. Um, and so I would really encourage people, it's absolutely fine to have questions and we want to answer them all as best we can so that you feel like you've made a really informed choice. But I'd really encourage you, if you have sort of held back till now and are thinking about vaccination or thinking about your booster, please chat to your midwife or to your GP or to your obstetrician. We'd love to talk to you about it. Thank you so much, Professor Walker. That's just some incredible messages. And I think just uh, from us at Radiotherapy, a bit of a personal thank you for all the hard work that you've been doing for pregnant women and women in general. It's just quite inspiring to hear. Great. Hey, lovely talking to you all this morning. All the best. Um, and touch chat to you again soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Going to turn our mind to some new research, Dr Sharma, that's coming out about MS that sounds incredibly exciting. It was published about three weeks ago, and honestly, I have not stopped thinking about it since. Not just because of the direct implications, but I think what it means for our understanding, and more importantly, acceptance of how... uh, how much viruses can affect humans long down the track past when you initially get infected. The punchline is that uh, it's been discovered that Epstein-Barr virus has been found to trigger, potentially, you know, kind of even cause, you could argue, multiple sclerosis. So it's, it's rare that one paper can just change our understanding completely, uh, but there had always been this kind of hint and suggestion that there's a link between the two. So I'll quote the senior author of the study, Alberto Sherio, who said, the hypothesis that EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, causes multiple sclerosis has been investigated by a group and others for several years, but this is the first study providing compelling evidence of causality. And to, to really highlight the bottom line here, because I don't think he goes far enough, to, we can now say that to get multiple sclerosis, you pretty much have had to have been infected with the Epstein-Barr virus, which has obvious implications for the cure. And Epstein-Barr virus is the virus that causes glandular fever, the uh, kissing disease that so many of us would have experienced in our youth. Exactly. And, and the thing is, we, you, most of us by the five years of age have had this and get very mild disease. We, when you get it as a young adult, you get uh, tend to get a bit sicker. But 90 to 95% of people have had this virus. And it's actually one of the tricky things about the, this, this hypothesis, right? What you're trying to prove is that this risk factor that everyone in the world is exposed to in 0.1% of people causes this thing called multiple sclerosis. Wow. So it's a very tricky thing to, to study, but you know, the design of the study was incredible. Okay, so what do you see as the implications going forward with this? You know, you, this call, it's called this landmark moment. What yep. happens now? Well, considering it's such a strong risk factor, that is to say, you know, having uh, Epstein-Barr viruses raises your risk of getting multiple sclerosis 32 times. If we can stop people from getting Epstein-Barr virus, we could pretty much 
stop people from getting multiple sclerosis. That's the implication. Right. Um, now... Uh, how, so, virus, we're all um, armchair virologists at the moment. Um, how does this virus get communicated? So, it's uh, passed on to people through contact with fluids and saliva, hence you know, kind of the kissing disease. Uh, and the, but the tricky thing about this virus is that you, you can't always just completely shed your body off it. It's very good at hiding in the system. It hides from the immune system, and this is very clever, by hiding in the immune system inside the B cells. So when we talk about the fear of how it is that this might be causing MS, well, we know that the B cells in our immune system attack uh, the, our nerves. That's what uh, that's how MS is, it kind of happens. Well, you get these cells infected with the Epstein-Barr virus, kind of overrides the software, causing all the damage. So if we can stop people from, 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 uh, from getting infected with the virus, we can stop it. If we can somehow target our therapies to these B cells, we could stop it. So those are the kind of implications here. Mm. I think it's important to note that a lot of the infections are uh, isolated to... Like the 95% is more common in lower middle income countries, which, as with most viruses, it makes it more difficult to um, create something like an eradication strategy because these, these countries uh, don't have the same public health measures that we are so lucky to have here. I mean, we're, we're seeing this play out with COVID, yeah. exactly. I've, I've got to say, my optimism with uh, with mass vaccination is certainly, you know, kind of <laughs> had to have been tempered with what I've seen over the last couple of years. But, you know, in terms of potentially using antiviral to treat people with it, yeah, then that's absolutely right. another avenue. Right. How, um, in the article you shared with us, um, Dr Sharma, 2.8 million was the figure used to um, tell us how much uh, uh, MS is affecting a population group. What's it? What's the story in Australia at the moment, do you know? I think it's about 0.1% of the oh, population right. has it. But, you know, Dr Neo makes a great point here. It's just come to my mind. If it is true that we are going to see a lot these infections happen more in lower-middle-income countries, I, I, it's not impossible to think that the prevalence there is actually much higher mm. than here. Uh-huh. It's, it's not an easy diagnosis to no. make. It is actually an incredibly hard diagnosis to make, which we rely on some quite specific tests, including an MRI, which is difficult to get in metropolitan Melbourne, let alone in uh, a rural uh, sort of small Africa. village. Yeah. yeah. So that's, it has global implications. And I think there's a bigger question here of, well, what are the other viruses uh, that might be causing all these other diseases that we haven't connected uh, to them? Uh, and particularly for things like uh, chronic fatigue, myalgic encephalomyelitis, these are uh, patients in advocacy groups who have said for years, hey, we've got persisting effects from a viral infection that we had months, maybe even years ago, and really institutions have, have kind of ignored and downplayed that, but mostly just because we don't actually know, don't have the evidence. But I think we're in the middle of a re- reawakening here, looking at the connection between EBV and multiple sclerosis, looking at long COVID and have it being recognised and seeing the biochemical mm. markers to say, hey, this is not, quote-unquote, in your head. Mm. This is a real thing. This could have implications for a lot of people who have been suffering from uh, you know, kind of unexpected uh, and undetected uh, health issues as a result of, of viral infections that seem to have kind of come and gone but haven't really. Mm. Do you see this um, almost immediately getting picked up in the... in? mainstream responses um certainly this is the sort of thing that generates research funding i think we are in the magic age of virology we're all armchair virologists and i encourage everyone to grab a test tube and a petri dish and and get to work but i I think we're going to see uh, huge amounts of funding um uh, and i think long COVID is really going to be the, the the lens through which people are going to start viewing uh 
viewing all this. I think we really are in the midst of a revolution. In a way, this, this is nothing new. We've known for a while that viral infections can cause problems down the track. We've just It's just been too, a too hard problem mm. to investigate. And now I, I don't think we can actually turn away from that. I, I think it'd be interesting how this actually changes clinical practice immediately. Like, I think as much as... Uh, funding will be driven towards research the actual implications currently are uh, minimal like we can't we're not we're not going to change how we treat ms now that we know that ebv is probably the triggering cause totally we we have no treatment for for that we have no treatment so to speak for long covid or 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 chronic fatigue Mm. so we're still a while away from that but what we can do is you know give people some kind of explanation some Mm. hope for the future and and just acceptance that these things do happen uh dr sharma you mentioned how this was hard science you know difficult and difficult science and that was that's been the big challenge and that's why this represents a breakthrough I guess something that occurs to me um, is that is now layered, given the subject matter, virus, um, it's now layered with the complication that <laughs> armchair virologists are everywhere and it's, and it's now turned into a public contentious issue about the response to virus and, you know, start talking about vaccines and something like that. So got this, got the first obstacle, which is the difficulty of the science and getting the methods right and the scientific approach to it right for the investigation and research. Now we've got this other layer as a consequence of COVID that's going to probably overlay on all every time something about virus or um, vaccinations are... Uh, Totally. I think this is now also, you know, right for everything from conspiracy theories to, you know, to late stage capitalism, just uh, doing everything it can to, to, to turn a profit on the uncertainty and the possibility. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. fingers time. crossed. Um, thanks a lot, Dr. Sharma. Really, really love good news stories. Mm. And really um, uh, I hope that uh, spells some good news for, for some of our mm. listeners. Watch this space. Watch this space. Yeah, keep, let's keep an eye on that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. For the first show of the year, we put our heads together and and, uh, we're thinking about something that we might be able to do for the rest of the year. We're thinking around about the the, the very thing that radiotherapy, amongst others, does, and that's communicate medical science um, to an interested, engaged and supremely intelligent audience such as your good selves. And what that means, there's opportunity there, there's risk there. Um, It's really a fascinating moment to be looking at how science is communicated given the COVID pandemic and and so on and and science is everywhere as Dr Shane says at the beginning of every episode of Einstein's Go-Go and when when we put our heads together and we're thinking about this we looked around and there it it really is everywhere. The communication of science is everywhere. It's obviously in the media and the nightly news, but it's also found all over places like YouTube. It's all in podcasts and blockbuster books um, and the like. And we wanted to take a look at how this is, um, how this communication is is taking place, and what it means, and how we can equip ourselves um, in whatever field that we might be looking at as non-experts. Um, how we might have our radar tuned to know whether this is um, a piece of science that's being communicated to us by somebody who's claiming expertise, and um, how we might take that on and find a place for it as for 
it in our own lives and experience. For today, we thought we might use a book by Dr. Pro- well, Professor Matthew Walker, a neurologist at um, uh, UC Berkeley. So we've got all the legitimacy, got all the credentials there, and his book is Why We Sleep. And this particular book, blockbuster of a book, it was a first edition, I believe, in 2017, and yet you won't uh, find it at all difficult with your Google fingers to find he's still very much um, on the media circuit um, talking um, about this publication that's really captured um, a lot of people's attention. This might be for a few reasons. Obviously, sleep is something that we all um, we all experience in one form or another. We all know our sleep patterns and can be self-critical of them or self-complimentary about them. We've got a general idea of what works for us. Are we a morning person, a night person? So we've got each of us have some kind of um, embodied um, expertise. Matthew Walker comes along, publishes this book, Why We Sleep. It gets picked up by the media. It sells millions of copies. It's all on the best bestseller lists. I took a look at my um, my library, my local library, not my university library, just to see. They've got 25 copies of this thing at the wow. library. 15 of them are currently on reservation. Um, and it's and not like this book has just come out. No, no, that's right. And um, it's on, you know, it's on um, audio platform as well as the the, the physical copy. Um, his TED talk has something like, um, well, I don't want to get the figure wrong. I think it was something like twenty five million views um, on his um, on his uh, um, yeah the TED talk on this particular book. It, Gives you the impression of the scale and scope, the level of interest around this topic of sleep. To you guys, Dr. Sharma, Dr. Neo, first of all, you've heard it. You've heard about this um, book. Uh, Have you read it? I have not read it, but I have read and spoken to people about it and you know it's it's not just the fact that it's this topic that's captured people it's the way in which he's presented this topic which is a way in which a lot of other people do the same thing too which is it is partially a um, kind of very easy to grasp uh, summation of uh, of some kind of complex science something that people can absolutely relate to and have some kind of fundamental connection or expertise with. And I think what the third element is, is there is this kind of self-help aspect to it. I don't mean that in a kind of derogatory way, but the idea that it's not just a meditation on the topic, but this is what you can do. This is what you should do. And something about this combination, taking something complex, making it digestible, Um, arguing from a place of expertise, and this is what you can do to make yourself better. I mean, it's it's just kind of pop size crack, really. He's got the he's got the um, he's got the package, isn't he? And and just um, before we go more specifically to that one, um, the other aspect of sleep um, that I bumped into when I was just checking in whether the local libraries were stocking it and so on um, is that sleep itself is a scientific genre in popular science. It, there's. Um, I was looking at the list of in the catalogue. There's sleep for um, that. Obviously, is just orientated around health. You know, how do you sleep better and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but there's books on sleep for new parents. Books on sleep for babies. There's books on sleep for if you're living with pain. There's books on sleep if you're living with depression or anxiety. You know, there's sleep is is something that is getting addressed in popular science books um, really quite prevalently and we've got um, um, sleeping apps 
and so on. So as you're saying, Dr. Summer, he's tapped into something that is of the moment. He he gives an anecdote um, in a number of his interviews where, as a young neuroscientist, when he was asked, you know, what specialisation he was going to take, um, he, and he answered he was going to um, do sleep, that, you know, most of his colleagues and peers at the time kind of rolled their eyes, kind of saying there's no money in that, referring to research money and so on. Mm. Uh, and yet, you know, um, I guess he's in his 40s now, so maybe his um, postdoc um, life is maybe 20-something years. Um, and, um, and here he is um, carving out a space for himself. What do you think are the, the things that um, readers of books coming from experts should have on their radar as they're reading it to work out for themselves whether this is a, um, a legitimate, worthy, um, whether I can incorporate it or not, how can I how can I personalise the macro topic to my my lived experience, Doctor Neo? What that's do you reckon? Kind of the million dollar question, isn't it? You know, how do we critically appraise these things that uh, we that have been presented to us as fact? And um, I think that's the the question that a lot of people have been asking, particularly over the past you know, five or six years with fake news and and a series of different um, experts claiming different things. I think individually you can always look at their their qualifications as a, as a good place to start. You know, is this person actually qualified to discuss this topic? Uh, do they have you know formal training in this area, or have they got lived experience in this er- in this area? I think a lot of the the best you know books in these areas do come from people who have lived experience. You know, patient advocates, for example write some really incredible um, lived experience books about uh, chronic illnesses, for example. Yeah. Just going to start pause you there because there's already a lot to unpack. So what, what what do we mean by expertise and legitimacy in that regard? So I'm thinking about, let's think about mm. sleep and mm. Professor Walker. So um, he, um, I think I may have called him a, um, a neurologist and I think maybe some semantics are relevant here. Mm. Um, I think he actually calls himself um, when I think about it, and in my notes here, I think he calls himself a neuroscientist. Correct. Yeah. Right. Very different, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so a a, a um, neuroscientist is going to come at the concept of sleep in a particular way, and then communicate mm. their perspective of sleep in a way that might be different than, for example, a psychologist mm. or even a psychiatrist. Mm. Um, you know, where sleep might be addressed from a completely different angle. Now, both those are domains of expertise. And. I think that's tapping into the next point, which is it, it's personal bias. You know, everyone's got a bias. Everyone's got a lean and a swing. And a psychologist may look at the at sleep as a concept of, you know, your, your own personal worries, your anxiety and your depression, whether it be fixing it or a cause of your, your poor sleep. Whereas a neuroscientist may be looking at the actual... Uh, mechanisms. Mechanisms, yeah. 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 Right. And so to your point earlier, the reader then needs to work out whether there's some expertise drift mm. on either part. Is the neuroscience drifting into the psychology of mm. sleep or is the psychologist drifting into the neuroscience of sleep? And I think a really good example was uh, that uh, uh, that kind of miswording there of the neurologist versus the neuroscientist. Yeah. Again, they, they seem so similar, but a neurologist is someone who sees patients. Uh, you know, yeah. So... These are one-on-one interactions. So, hey, I've got a problem. Can you fix it? That's very different to someone who's a neuroscientist who's, this is a problem. What what is the underlying cause? What can be done on a macro level? So, you know, 
the point being, I think you were making earlier, that that comes with some inherent biases about what qualifies as a good enough answer or, or, or a big enough claim. I think we, yeah, so within the domain of expertise, we need to respect that there are multiple uh, almost kind of disciplines within that kind of expertise that we need to pay attention to. And I think the thing that followed was on from that, to answer your question, panel beater, about how are people to, to kind of appraise these things, is, well, okay, you've got that one person's expert expertise, their training, their credentials, sure. You also, however, need to see what other experts in that field hmm. think of this stuff. Right. And the newer the finding it is, the harder it is going to uh, you know, to be. But, but the point is, the consensus amongst experts, you know, on the on the big levels, probably the, the biggest guidance of truth. Now, it makes it very tricky when someone claims to have a big breakthrough. I suppose sometimes they can be right, but by definition, most of the time, radical enough a finding yeah. is probably not going to be right. Yeah, 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 I, and I think that's a crucial point. So, whatever critique we might make of a pop science book. Um, even if it's by, authored by somebody who has professor in front of their name from an elite institution and so on, um, to, to critique that is not to necessarily say that book shouldn't exist or it should be dismissed. It's to say that it just needs to be – it needs a, a particular place. And as you're saying, Dr Sharma, sometimes these leaps – push the discussion a bit. Mm. The, the the first book mightn't be the one that um, explains it all as much as the author might claim, totally, yeah. um, but it does lead a discussion at, that does start to address our particular issues. Some uh, Using this book as a case study, you can see how this idea of expertise um, has an inherent vulnerability. So in the book, um, he lays claims around um, how sleep can improve learning, um, how it addresses mood, how it addresses energy, how it regulates hormones, how it prevents cancer, how it um, addresses Alzheimer's, how it addresses ageing and uh, longevity, right? Each one of those is a domain of expertise. (laughs) 100%. And and in fact, this is, I I think, one of my kind of key gripes with the book um, is that each of those claims, there is a kind of compelling mechanistic kind of narrative behind them. But epidemiologically, you know, I've certainly looked at individual experts in, in those areas who've said, I dispute this thing by Matthew Walker. It doesn't mean that the gist of what he's saying is wrong. I don't think so. In fact, I think he, generally speaking, gives good individual advice on what, for people what to do. But there is this tendency towards, let's just say, you know, I think hyperbole yeah. um, uh, there. And, uh, and you know, the only way that I know that is when I reach out and read criticisms of his works from yeah. people who understand what's going on makes it very tricky for the average punter to know. Um, for those of you who are fortunate enough not to have to read too many academic articles, <laughs> the three of us in the room probably re- have read more than our fair share, there's a one thing you notice in the difference between, say, a book on sleep like Matthew Walker's and a journal article on sleep is in the, the, the tone and the expression of the book is like a sales pitch. So mm. Matthew Walker, um, um, and, and it's not necessarily a criticism, I think it's inherent to the nature of the format, um, um, but uh, the, the, he uses language like sleep is a superpower. If sleep came in a pill form, it would be the biggest selling pill you mm. could buy and, and all of this sort of thing, which notionally might be true. Mm. <laughs> At the end of every journal article, there's a sentence that goes something like, more, <laughs> the authors uh, seem to think that the, uh, the evidence is pointing in this direction, but more research needs to be done. <laughs> you know, that, that sentence is almost a templated um, article sentence. Yeah. Hey, um, we've got fast time. Goes to show you, um, so there's so much to say about this, and we we hope to return to it um, over the course of 22. Thanks for um, joining us uh, today on Radio Therapy. It's been myself, Panel Beater, Dr. Sharma, and Dr. Neo. Look out for the podcast. Big thanks to Max. 
Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.